Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Vinyl Approach. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use The Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that interest me about musicians and their records. Today, we will talk about the importance of names in music. In 1970, I was working at a grocery store in Des Moines, Iowa. My manager was not a fan of rock music. He mocked many of the current groups, partly because of their odd names. I remember him railing against bands like Ultimate Spinach and Moby Grape. I had told him about these two groups because their names dealt with food. Since he was a grocery store manager, I thought he might dig it. He didn't. One day I mentioned Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. My manager liked that, a list of the musicians' names, truth in advertising. I didn't realize at the time how far-sighted my store manager was about name recognition. Today on The Vinyl Approach, we will take a look at a few situations concerning musical identity and names. When a record company puts out an album, they don't want to confuse the customer. They want a product that carries a straightforward, unambiguous title. Either the simple name of an artist, or the easily recognizable and easily pronounceable name of a group. I think of Tom Hanks' character in the movie That Thing You Do, when he tells his newly signed band to drop the clever spelling of a name that looks like it would be pronounced The Owen Eaters, and to use the much simpler The Wonders. Smart move. Maybe somebody should have given that renaming tip to Hoobastank. In the 1960s, inventive and outrageous band names were prominent. Some of these that were once radical and intentionally odd became mainstream, and they sound normal to us now. Band names like Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd, or the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Unusual at the time, even outlandish, but these names were also immediately recognizable. They served the record company's purpose because they were unique and distinctive. When fans wanted an album by Procol Harum or Soft Machine, they got it. No confusion. The trend continues to this day, by the way, with odd yet memorable names like Squirrel Nut Zippers and Rainbow Kitten Surprise. Back in the day, there would be occasional changes in what would now be called branding, but not too many. The Young Rascals did become just the Rascals, the Small Faces morphed into the Faces, and Grand Funk Railroad turned into Grand Funk. Jim McGuinn became Roger McGuinn after being told by a spiritual advisor that a name with an R in it would vibrate better with the universe. Okay. Singer Dionne Warwick changed the spelling of her last name for a similar reason, adding a final E to Warwick when an astrologer told her it would bring her luck. When Warwick's luck did not improve, she dropped the E. Few people noticed the spelling change other than exasperated concert promoters. In 1971, my wife was on a committee that booked Dionne Warwick to perform at a small college in far northern Moorhead, Minnesota. The promotional posters for the concert had been printed using the old spelling of the star's name. The singer arrived on campus and became enraged, demanding that all concert posters and programs be reprinted. I guess she wanted things done right for her high-profile gigs, like in Moorhead, Minnesota. Some artists changed their names, hoping to distract public recognition. Musician Mike McGear is the younger brother of Beatle Paul. McGear was once asked why he changed his name from McCartney to McGear. He explained, 
if I call myself Mike McCartney, everybody says, oh, that's Paul's little brother. But if I call myself Mike McGear, everybody says, oh, that's Paul's little brother. Sometimes group names did not change, even after radical shakeups in personnel. The best example of this may be Fleetwood Mac. There is the Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer blues band era, and the Buckingham Knicks hit singles era, plus an interim period that featured Danny Kerwin and Bob Welsh. Each is anchored by founders Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. But these are essentially different groups. Similarly, when discussing Deep Purple, one needs to specify which of this band's seven lineups you are talking about. It's said that Jimmy Page wanted to take the name The Yardbirds with him when he left this disintegrating band and apply it to his new group. He wanted the bankable name recognition that Yardbirds would bring. He was prevented from doing this, so he called his new band Led Zeppelin instead. It seems to have worked out okay for him. Jimmy Page knew that once recognition takes hold with the public, a name is valuable property. Huge legal battles have been fought over rights to use a band's name. Some years back, there were two touring groups billing themselves as Sam and Dave, one led by Sam Moore and one led by Dave Prater. A similar scenario applies to the Beach Boys, to Yes, and many others. But battles over name use is a large topic best saved for another time. For the most part, though, bands and performers' names remain pretty stable in the realms of rock and pop music. In the world of jazz, however, things became complicated. The early 1970s was not only the era of mind expansion and extended-length performance pieces, even musicians' names were being elongated. After leaving Miles Davis's band, pianist Herbie Hancock started calling himself Mwandishi Herbie Hancock, Mwandishi being a Swahili word for writer. The group's drummer Billy Hart was now Jabali Billy Hart, and trombonist Julian Priester became Pepo Matoto Julian Priester. These musicians did not take their new names lightly. Herbie Hancock even gave his next album the title Mwandishi from 1971. On this record and the following year's Crossings album, Hancock and his musicians are listed with their expanded Swahili names. They would be used again on the album Sextant. In fact, on Sextant, the band's Swahili names receive greater prominence than their given names. I find it appropriate that the group's longer names are used for some of this keyboard player's most elongated and exploratory musical journeys. Hancock once said of his Mwandishi touring band, we would be playing a piece for 30 minutes and suddenly realize we hadn't gotten around to the tune's head yet. Some might say that during Hancock's Mwandishi era, there were few discernible heads in these compositions. Either way, expansive stuff. In the fall of 1973, Herbie Hancock released the massively popular Headhunters record, which featured the catchy tune Chameleon. The pieces on this album, while still lengthy, are far more straightforward than the experimental sextant. On the back cover credits of the Headhunters album, all Swahili references have been retired. I don't know if there was pressure from Columbia for Hancock to simplify his band member names. The reason I wonder about record label interference is because of an interview I had with drummer Eric Gravatt. Gravatt played on early albums by the fusion group Weather Report and on records by other jazz notables. In the mid-1970s, Gravatt was recording with pianist McCoy Tyner. Gravatt told me that during his time with Tyner, he had decided to honor his ancestry by using his middle name, Kamau. He would now be known professionally as Eric Kamau Gravatt. 
When McCoy Tyner's producer learned that Sideman Gravat wanted to be listed on the album's credits as Eric Kamau Gravat, he had a fit. The producer told Gravat that they weren't buying into that nickname stuff, partially because that era is over, but mainly because it caused confusion. Gravat became angry, insisting that Kamau was part of his given name, and telling the producer he could check his birth certificate if he had doubts. In the credits for the two albums Gravat recorded with McCoy Tyner, one lists Eric Gravat's full Kamau name, one doesn't. Like Moandishi Herbie Hancock, most musicians who embellished their names had shelved the additions by the late 70s. Even the most famous monikers were being phased out. Guitarist Mahavishnu John McLaughlin was once again known as John McLaughlin. Devadip Carlos Santana returned to calling himself Carlos Santana. This was true with most, but not all. Some musicians changed their name and kept them changed. Multi-read jazz man Roland Kirk was way ahead of the curve, adding Ra San to his name in 1970 after hearing the word in a dream. He would keep the name Ra San Roland Kirk until his death in 1977. Because Kirk's greatest success came after becoming known as Rasan, I doubt if there is any pressure placed on him to simplify it. I don't think he would have anyway. Cat Stevens changed his name to Youssef, but that's an extreme example of rebranding. Also, at the time Cat Stevens changed to Youssef, his music career was on a lengthy hiatus. He currently seems to answer to both names, releasing music by Youssef while simultaneously promoting lavish reissues of his Cat Stevens albums. Prince changed his name to a symbol, but we don't have time to go into that, except to say that he eventually changed his name back to Prince. We lost Chick Corea earlier this year. Corea was unusual in that he fought to have his name removed from album covers by his fusion band Return to Forever. This was not because he didn't want to be associated with the recordings. He just wanted the billing to reflect a unified group effort. It was similar to what Paul McCartney was doing at the time, placing the band's name on the album cover instead of his own. Paul was striving to prove that Wings was a real group and not just one guy with backing musicians. Paul had the power to do as he pleased, but Chick Corea was forced by Polydor Records to keep his name prominent on Return to Forever album covers for greater name recognition. In fact, band identity was central to Korea's new contract when he moved to the Columbia label. Beginning with 1977's Romantic Warrior album, the quartet was known strictly as Return to Forever instead of Return to Forever featuring Chick Corea. Another group altered its name to keep from giving too much credit to a single band member, but unlike Return to Forever, this change may not have come at the leader's suggestion. In 1969, a remarkable debut album called Loosen Up Naturally was released by the inventive San Francisco horn band The Sons of Champlin. The group was led by singer and multi-instrumentalist Bill Champlin. But by the time their second record came out, it was clear what lay ahead. That album was called The Sons, and on its front and back cover was the proclamation, The Sons of Champlin have changed their name to The Sons. Okay, we get it. I don't know for sure that this name change signaled inner turmoil, but for whatever reason, the group's membership lacked long-term cohesion. For a while, though, the Suns made some great music. Another horn band also had a strong debut album released in 1969, and like the Sons of Champlin, the Chicago Transit Authority underwent a name change after their first record. 
but the Chicago Transit Authority changed its name to avoid legal action being threatened by hometown officials, the actual Transit Authority of Chicago. So the banned Chicago Transit Authority became Chicago, and they had a remarkable career. Another interesting connection between the Suns and Chicago, after more than a decade of frustration over his lack of commercial success and his own band in tatters, Bill Champlin was asked to join Chicago. Sometimes a performer is just unlucky. In the world of country music, singers Cal Smith and Carl Smith had overlapping careers. A singer who had a big hit in the 1950s called Honeycomb was named Jimmy Rogers. The uninitiated would regularly confuse this pop vocalist with the father of country music Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman. More recently, the similar-sounding Ryan Adams and Brian Adams briefly caused audience confusion. The Rolling Stones' Keith Richard is said to have added an S to his last name to make sure that no one thought there was any connection between Keith Richard and British pop star Cliff Richard. Little chance of that. And I doubt if Keith cared. That sounds like a manager's decision. Groups naming themselves after their own members were pretty much locked into band membership. The Souther Hillman Furry Band, for example, had to include John David Souther, Chris Hillman, and Richie Furry. The group Bat, Dorf, and Rodney had to include, well, you get the idea. One trio had an inventive way of dealing with the departure of a named member. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer had been a huge prog rock draw in the early 1970s. Like many big-name groups of the period, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer disbanded and then later decided to reunite. The problem was that by 1985, drummer Carl Palmer had joined the band Asia, so was not available for the ELP reunion. A group like Uriah Heep had many members pass through its lineup and were still called Uriah Heep. But Emerson, Lake, and Palmer needed to be made up of the three guys named Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Or did they? Lacking Palmer, Keith Emerson and Greg Lake recruited Cozy Powell to play drums. Now it was Emerson, Lake, and Powell. The first two words carried such immediate recognition that Powell's name in place of Palmer's went unnoticed by casual observers. As others have suggested, I don't think it was an accident that the original members chose a replacement drummer with a two-syllable last name that started with the letter P. I suppose, even with a different drummer, they could have still billed themselves as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, but they probably didn't want to be like the Chad Mitchell Trio, who continued to call themselves the Mitchell Trio long after Chad Mitchell had left the group. And with this concept of truth in advertising and band names, we return to my grocery store manager in Des Moines, who liked the accuracy of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. A group named Johnny Carson once joked sounded like a law firm. Hearing of the periodic animosity that has plagued that quartet for the past five decades, Carson's reference to litigation may have been more correct than he knew. But that's another story. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and this has been The Vinyl Approach. If you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Sound Bites, A Lifetime of Listening. It's available on Amazon. Take care, and I'll see you next time when we will talk about Willie Nelson. Or maybe Bruce Springsteen. I haven't quite decided yet. But we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.